If you remember, before the beginning of Lent, which started the first of March, we were in a series of messages on Paul's letter to the Philippians. We interrupted that to pay attention to Lent and Holy Week and Easter. And now we're back to finish it with the last two sermons, this week and next week. The text this week is taken from the third chapter of Philippians, beginning at verse 12, and reading through the first verse of chapter 4. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things, and if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already obtained. Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. For as I have often told you before, and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. This is the word of the Lord. She was a young musician, and she was involved in a lifestyle that we've come to associate with the lifestyle of young, popular musicians. She had dabbled in drugs. She had been involved in sexual promiscuity. She had been appreciative of other distorted values. And then one day, in a very dramatic experience, she had a Damascus Road conversion, like Paul's. The power of Christ came into her life. It was completely transformed almost in an instant. The power that Paul was talking about in this passage, in verse 21, the power that enables him, that is Christ, to bring everything under his control. She was, somebody said, a clear picture of the twice-born. She was a musician, I said. She was on her way to the top. She was good. She was on her way up when she met Christ, or more 
correctly when Christ met her. And for her, that conversion was something like Paul's conversion was. Remember him storming off to Damascus to fight Christ and to fight Christians and coming back not long after a disciple of Christ and a Christian. Well, she was in a deep depression, this young musician, when she called her pastor one day not long after this and said to him, Quote, it's hell. This music world, cocaine, alcohol, madness for money and success. I don't know how I can make it. I want another world. I don't want to live like the people in this world, but I'm being pulled into it. It's almost impossible to resist. I need your support and prayers. Unquote. I want another world. She recognized as a Christian that she was an alien now in this world. I want another world. Can you say that? Do you say that? Isn't that the kind of thing Paul was talking about in verse 12 when he wrote these familiar words? I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus has taken hold of me. Or as Eugene Peterson put it in the message, I'm well on my way reaching out for Christ who has so wondrously reached out for me. Don't you want another world too? Well, Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven. He writes that, first of all, and originally to Philippi, a Roman colony. Some distance from Rome, as a matter of fact, quite a ways from Rome, all the way on the other side of Greece, and yet at the same time, very close to Rome. Because Rome made it a policy to establish each of its colonies as a little Rome away from Rome. And in each of the colonies of Rome, Roman dress was worn. Roman magistrates governed. Roman laws prevailed. Roman language was spoken. Roman justice was administered. Roman morals were observed. And the Roman emperor was worshipped. And to them, these Philippians, in their Rome away from Rome, and to us, Paul says, remember now, our citizenship is in heaven. James Moffat also translated the Bible, and he put that text this way. We are a colony of heaven. We are a place on this earth where the ways of heaven are observed. We are to be a little bit of heaven away from heaven. God's colony. Now just reflect on that for a few minutes right now. God's people are a colony of heaven. And in that colony, the dress of heaven is worn. 
I will be quoting some biblical passages now, all of them at this point from the message. In the colony where we are, or which we are, the dress of heaven is worn. Remember Paul writing to the Colossians? So, chosen by God for this new life of love, dress in the wardrobe God picked out for you. Compassion, kindness, humility, quiet strength, discipline. Be even-tempered, content with second place, quick to forgive an offense, Forgive as quickly and completely as the master forgave you, and regardless of what else you put on, wear love. It's your basic, all-purpose garment. Never be without it. God's people are a colony of heaven where the rules of heaven prevail. Remember Paul writing earlier in this letter to Philippi in chapter 2. Don't push your way to the front. Don't sweet talk your way to the top. Put yourself aside and help others get ahead. Don't be obsessed with getting your own advantage. Forget yourselves long enough to lend a helping hand. God's people are a colony of heaven. And there the language of heaven is spoken. Remember Paul writing to the Ephesians in chapter 4, watch the way you talk. Let nothing foul or dirty come out of your mouth. Say only what helps. Each word, a gift. God's people are a colony of heaven where the morals of heaven are observed. Here's Paul, again in his letter to the Colossians, in chapter 2. My counsel for you is simple and straightforward. Just go ahead with what you've been given. You received Christ Jesus, the Master. Now live him. You're deeply rooted in him. You're well constructed upon him. You know your way around the faith. Now do what you've been taught. School's out. Quit studying the subject and start living it. And let your living spill over into thanksgiving. God's people are a colony of heaven. And the king of heaven is worshipped there. Here's Paul in this letter to the Philippians again in chapter 2. Because of Christ's obedience, God lifted him high and honored him far beyond anyone or anything ever, so that all created beings in heaven and on earth, even those long dead and buried, will bow in worship before this Jesus Christ and call out in praise that he is the master of all to the glorious honor of God the Father. And all of that is the way life is to be lived here where we are, this colony of God, this little bit of heaven away from heaven, where we reside as resident aliens. And Paul says we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Those whose citizenship is in heaven, who are a colony of God's, 
on earth who are a little bit of heaven away from heaven are characterized by eagerness. We eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what's it like to be eagerly awaiting Christ's return? I want to give you a few illustrations of eager waiting that may help us to understand that. Think, first of all, about a vacation. Now, I know that the way things are in the world right now, it's hard to plan or even dream about a trip. But think of one you took or one you were hoping to take. And analyze, isn't it true that a great deal of planning and detail work and packing and effort and exertion is necessary to make it happen? But our eagerness to do or go where the vacation will take us makes us energetic and efficient and persistent and happy and almost tireless in taking care of all those details in order to go where we want to go. Or think about something entirely different. Think about surgery. Surgery you needed once, or maybe need now, or someone you know who needed it or needs it now. Surgery almost always involves significant pain. But isn't it true that the eagerness to have things corrected and the pain caused by the current condition relieved makes you determined and willing and even eager to submit to the knife. <clears throat> Maybe another illustration will help even more. Today was to have been a day that five of our young people made profession of faith before all of us. Now, I don't know them, and I don't know when they will be standing here. I am sure they will be, but not today. It reminds me, however, of many young people I've known over the years who on the other side of profession of faith look at it and say, this is a really daunting experience. I'm required to go to some classes and to write some things, and then to go to a meeting of the pastoral elders and deacons, maybe a few dozen people sitting there, people I almost completely do not know, who probably do not know me, and who when I walk in, look somber and serious. And I am to tell them what lies in the deepest recesses of my heart, things I may never have told anyone else out loud before. And then I have to stand up in front of church and do it all over again. And even if it's only saying I do in answer to a question, I have to do what I say I'll do. And that challenge is huge. But the eagerness to say, now I know God loves me. And his son died for me. And with Paul, I want to reach out to take hold of the Jesus who reached out to take hold of me. 
And that all makes me eager to go through it and even enjoy it. That's something of the emotion Paul had in mind when he talked about our eagerly awaiting Christ's return. And that eagerness makes whatever effort or pain or inconvenience or difficulty or expense not only endurable but almost inconsequential compared to what it is we're eager for. And the knowledge that Jesus is Savior and Jesus is Lord and Jesus is coming again not only enables you to survive life, but to live it. And to live it in a way that is exuberant and joyful and full of God's grace and God's glory. It means we're going to be eager, not just willing, eager to put on the dress of heaven and cover ourselves with love. It means we're going to be eager to obey the rules of heaven, not just when somebody's looking, but all the time. It means we're going to be eager to learn the language of heaven and speak only what will build people up and help people and be a gift to them. It means we'll be eager to observe the morals of heaven and display God's love and God's will and God's way in ours. It means we will be eager to worship the King of heaven, not just on Sunday in this room, but always wherever we are. Paul wrote a letter to Titus once, and in it he described these citizens of heaven, God's colonists, this way. Was he describing us? Was he describing you when he said, he gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people who were his very own, eager to do what is good. Our citizenship, Paul is saying in this passage, is in heaven. And we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Resident aliens, citizens of heaven, God's colonists, eagerly awaiting Christ's return to take us home, eagerly living more and more like citizens of heaven even while remaining residents of earth and expecting that when our Lord returns we will be transformed with a dynamic transformation to be more like him. Ever wonder what that will be like? That transformation to be like Jesus in heaven? Oh, I've wondered and I've heard other people wondering and I've even heard pastors wonder about it in sermons. Are we going to look the way we look now? I think we'll look something like that. Jesus was physical, visible, tangible, recognizable after his resurrection. I don't know what age we'll be. I don't know if we'll all be the same age. 
I don't know if we'll be the age we were when we went to heaven, though I rather doubt that. I don't know whether we'll need to open doors in heaven or whether we can just be where we want to be the way Jesus was on Easter Sunday. So I don't know whether there will be doors in heaven. I don't even know whether there will be rooms in heaven. I don't know whether we'll get hungry or thirsty or tired or older in heaven. I don't know whether there will be challenges in heaven, whether there will be things to learn in heaven. Whether if you play a game in heaven, there will be a winner and a loser. Whether you need to become more proficient at sports they might have in heaven. And what that would mean or imply. Perhaps 18 holes of golf in heaven would only be 18 strokes forever. I don't know the answers to any of these questions. I don't know much about what it will be like then, but I know that God expects the transformation to begin now. I believe we must be being transformed today. I believe it's happening already, and here, and in you, and in me. And I ask you to listen again to Paul earlier in this same letter to the Philippians say, for to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Imagine that. Hard-pressed to decide between living and dying, not because he didn't care about either, but because both were so important. St. Augustine wrote once about his mother, Monica, and her wonderful attitude toward life and death. And he described it this way. We were discussing between ourselves what the eternal life of the saints would be like, which eye hath not seen, nor ear heard, nor hath it entered into the heart of man. Our talk had reached this point, that the greatest possible delights of our bodily senses, radiant as they might be, with the brightest of corporeal light, could not be compared with the joys of the eternal life, could not indeed even deserve a mention. My mother said, my son, what more I have to do here and why I am still here, I do not know. There was only one reason why I wanted to stay a little longer in this life, and that was that I should see you a Christian before I died. Now God has granted me this beyond my hopes. For I see that you have despised the pleasures of this world and are becoming his servants. So what am I doing here? The hope of, the confidence in, the eagerness for this dynamic transformation enables me to say with Paul, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Therefore, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, this is how you should stand firm 
in the Lord, dear friends. Once again, Paul wants us to remember that our hope for tomorrow ought to make a big difference today. Our confidence about the future enables us to stand firm in the present. May I give you an example written about a girl named Maria by Dick Eastman in an article entitled Circle of Faith. Little 10-year-old Maria lived in a rural village in central Chile. When her mother died, Maria became the woman of the house, caring for her father, who worked the night shift at the local mine. Maria cooked and cleaned and made sure her father's lunch was ready when he left the house for work each evening. Maria loved her father and was worried by how despondent he had become since her mother's death. Maria went to church on Sundays and tried to get her father to go with her, but he refused. His heart was too empty. One evening, as Maria was packing her father's lunchbox, she slipped a gospel booklet inside that she had received from a missionary worker who had been distributing them home to home in the area where they lived. Maria prayed that her father would read the booklet and find the comfort she had found in God's great love. It was 1.10 a.m. when Maria was suddenly awakened by a horrible sound. The emergency whistle at the mine was blaring through the darkness, calling the townspeople to come running with shovels and willing hands to help dig for miners who were caught in a cave-in. Maria made her way through the streets to the mine in search of her father. Scores of men were frantically pulling debris away from the collapsed tunnel where eight men were trapped. One of the men was Maria's father. Emergency crews worked through the night and finally broke through to a small cavern where they found the miners. Sadly, they were too late. All eight men had suffocated. The rescue workers were devastated, but as they surveyed the scene, they noticed that the men had died seated in a circle. As the workers looked closer, they discovered Maria's father was sitting with a small gospel booklet in his lap, open to the last page where the plan of salvation was clearly explained. On that page, Maria's father had written a special message to his daughter. My darling Maria, when you read this, I will be with your mother in heaven. I read this book, this little book, and then I read it several times to the men while we were seated, waiting to be rescued. Our hope is fading for this life, but not for the next. We did as this book told us and prayed, asking Jesus into our hearts. I love you very much, Maria, and one day soon, we will all be together in heaven. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray 
that you will hold us lovingly in your hands always and help us to be aware of that and help us to eagerly await your return to take us with you to be in heaven. And in the meantime, help us to be transformed here in a way that shows that our citizenship is in heaven and gives people direction and instruction and encouragement for following us to be with you there. Will you hear and answer our prayer because we offer it to you in the precious and powerful name of Jesus. Amen. And now go in peace, and may the God of peace himself give you peace at all times and in all places. The Lord be with you all. Amen. Amen.